Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Joe, welcome back to the show, mate. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure here in Sydney. Sun is out. It's a lovely day. A few years ago, when you came on the show, you mentioned some of your favorite fooderies and, and coffee spots. Yeah. You said Cabrito, which is where I went for coffee this morning with the team. Has that changed? I'm still a Cabrito fan. I'm also a fan of Marlowe's Way. I don't know if you've been there before. No. It's around the corner from the ASX. It's very nice. They don't do decaf, which has been difficult for me following my transition to drinking more decaf. But overall, it's, it's very nice coffee. Marlowe's. Okay. Yeah. How about food? Well, I got to go with the Gidley. Uh, the Gidley is a underground place. It's in the CBD. They focus on meat, which I understand is not so much your cup of tea these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do killer steaks. In particular, they're known for the spinalis cut. So if spinalis. You, I, I didn't know what this was. Do, do you know? No. Okay. So if you get a Scotch Villa, you know the outer ring mm-hmm. that's the really, really tasty, tender, fatty part? That's the whole cut. So the whole thing is that. And I was like, I didn't know you could do that. And they do that. So it, it's tremendous. And it's a phones off restaurant. So you go down, they put your phone in a bag and you actually have a conversation with no one looking at phones, just enjoying good meat and company. Wow. To it's be present. Nice. Actually, this is something um, that you brought up many years ago. You said to me that you didn't have a smartphone because you wanted to be more present. Yes. Is that still the case? No, I had to fold. I... Basically, the business just got too too needy for me to not have a smartphone anymore. What's the biggest? What was the biggest thing that was missing? Just email or like um, instant messaging? Or? I had a broker who emailed me about a line, mm-hmm. and I didn't see it because I didn't have email on my phone. And I got back from lunch, and I saw it. And after that, it didn't affect the trade. But after that, I was like, I can't, I can't miss a line of something mm. so i just had to suck it up and get back on the smartphone and, and i'm as addictive as as i was before so it's it's terrible <laughs> so you don't put it away when you get home or anything like that uh, i do i'm better about it than i was but my wife would probably tell you that uh i, I could do a better job of it mm. yeah we're just talking off air about how you kind of have to limit the, the the stimulus that you get from the outside the notifications i think Maybe being a chief investment officer, it would be a bit dif- difficult to to miss those important. I do turn a lot calls. of things off, so we use Slack, and mm. it, I think Slack is great. But I turned off notifications for that, and I very much shifted just phone calls. So, to be honest, you get a million emails a day when you're managing a lot of money. People would like to participate in that in some way. And so they, they email you, I get tons of messages. So our team, basically we're just all on phone calls. I'm like, just call me if something comes up, which, you know, I think what's called a geriatric millennial. (laughs) So they kind of, it's off, off brand for my age and cohort. Uh, But yeah, phone calls, they, they still work. They're very effective. It's a lot better than messaging, to be honest. Back in my day, we did phone calls and, and they still work. It's, the brokers got me back into it because they use phone calls all the time. Mm, for sure. So in this discussion, we're going to talk about your time here in Australia. 
what you've learned along the way, some of the successes and some of the things that um, have changed in terms of your philosophy, your perspective on life and, and so on and so forth. Many, many investors will know that you, you came to Australia nearly 10 years ago now and you started it here in Australia. You were with Motley Fool. You started on the Hidden Gems service and you went to Pro and then eventually started Lake House. Um, I'm interested though, even if we think back to your time inside Valley in the US and right up until now, how or what your why as for being an investor, if that has changed, so why you started investing then, what interested you about it and has that changed today? Yeah, I'd say my my why has evolved over time. So I got into investing because I'm I was just always really curious about business markets. I would go in stores and kind of wonder, why are people here? Why are people buying this? Why is this product interesting? And I was just a nerdy kid for business for as long back as I can remember. And, and my grandfather got me into investing in markets and really nurtured that. He was a passionate investor. My dad was a small business owner. So just from an early age, business at large and business thinking was a big part of my life. And and it was always fun for me. So that curiosity was really what drove it. As I got older and I kind of shifted from, we'll call it um, being a, an amateur investor to, to being a professional, um, you know, it, I'd say it became, that's still there. So I'm still every bit the investing and business nerd that I was when I started doing it. But it's gotten a lot more nuanced. Um, been fortunate to serve a lot of people, you know, tens of thousands of, of members over time, thousands of clients, and it, it's been a lot of fun to serve them. And I, I've been honored by their trust and to know that you're making an impact in people's lives has, has been great and really fun and rewarding for me and added a lot of value to it. Um, I'm a quietly competitive person as well. And so, you know, doing that as kind of a team sport has been a lot of fun for me the past few years and, and before that, you know, at The Fool. Uh, but also I'd say getting closer to the action and engaging with our companies. So particularly with some of the smaller growth companies that we backed and just engaging with those companies, giving feedback and um, yeah, not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as say shaping what they're doing, but just being a part of that journey at an earlier stage has, has been a lot of fun for me. Do you think that there's a difference in attitude between Australian investors and U.S. investors and, um, do, do you take anything away from being here in Australia and in this ecosystem um, that you maybe didn't anticipate? Yeah, sure. So I think there are a few big differences. I, I guess philosophically, one is that Australians, I think, are a lot more outward looking, which makes sense in that the, the U.S. economy is probably a little more balanced in terms of internal and external. Australian economy is very outwardly focused. Um but that's a very healthy thing. You're much, you're much more likely to have a, a nuanced conversation about markets and, say, exchange rates with a random person in an Australian barbecue than you would in the U.S., and I think that's fun and interesting. Um, I'd say the risk appetite is like a really interesting like juxtaposition here where Australians on the whole, the business climate, probably more risk averse than Americans. Now, obviously I can think of plenty of exceptions to that and there are a lot of great entrepreneurial success stories here. But on the whole, 
I'd say that's true. But then on the flip side, Australians gamble more per capita than, than any other country, which I've seen you tweet about recently. Um, so it's not like people here aren't willing to, to take risk or have a go or take a pond or, you know, insert another fun Aussieism here that I will take with me when I go. Um, yeah, but that's been kind of interesting. And, you know, as part of that, I think another derivation is there's a lot more of a yield centric mindset here. And, you know, I think initially when I got here, I was so confused about why people were just obsessed with with yield and equities. And, and then I came to better appreciate franking credits, which explains a lot of it. But even still, um, the U.S. is more capital gains focused and sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And you can see that sometimes that the companies you invest into and the way they they wait way they, they manage capital, the way they incentivize employees. And there are times where we invest in companies in the States and I'm like, look, I kind of wish they were a little more Australian in terms of what you don't need to, maybe you don't need to go quite so hard here, or maybe you don't need to shower employees quite so much with, with stock-based comp. But then there are times where I'm here where I look at companies I'm like, you know, we nudge them on, look, have you considered pushing equity grants a little further down than just you know, the three or four people at the top of the company to get better alignment. And so it's been interesting to get those different frames of reference. And hopefully I can use that and take it forward to push companies to, you know, think a little more strategically. Mm. Yeah, I think top, top poppy syndrome is something that we have here. I think even if we look just across the pond to New Zealand, we see many exceptional companies and a slightly different attitude towards risk than we do here. Um, someone said to me, it may have even been you many years ago, that Sometimes when we when we look at businesses and entrepreneurs here in Australia, it's almost cringed or, or like cringeworthy or frowned upon that they would take so much risk with their own career or their capital. And then you look across at the states, and it's you know it's heralded. People are you know held in high regard. We we call people the most successful if they've been successful in business. That doesn't necessarily mean in life, but successful correlates with business. Um, and that's I, I'd say it's an as a someone who has started my own business, I think it's an unfortunate, you know, mindset for us here in Australia. But there are some, as you said, great exceptions to that. When you look back over the past eight to ten years, when you came to Australia, did you think that you would have had the success that you did, both from an investing perspective and from a business perspective, you know, building? Co-founding Lake House. And no. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no. Like it, it went, frankly, much better than I, I think I could have hoped for, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, I think the business overall, I, I've had a blast, worked with great people. Um, you know, I think Molly Flow Australia has been a, a great success. I'm happy to have been part of that. And then at Lake House, you know, if you told me we would have gotten up to something like $900 million in assets in a few years, I, I, I would have been floored by that. So... No, it's been it's been great. Uh, it's been a great ride. Um, and performance wise, you know, I've always just tried to kind of focus on the process and what we do well, and hopefully the performance would would come and and it would come in whatever way it would. But I felt like the way we were going about it was putting us in a place to get the best outcome for our style and, and what we wanted to do. And so I'm I'm really happy with with how it's come out, honestly. But again, it's not starting from a place of what we want performance to be in absolute terms, but more like this is what we think will drive long-term outperformance. Let's stick with it and, and we'll see what happens from a performance angle. Mm. I think it's pretty 
easy for people on the outside to overlook it now, the, the success that you've had on the investing side, the returns specifically. But in the early days of Lake House, um, the long-term clients and investors would know that there were some pretty trying times. Yeah. I think straight out of the gate, you had Bellamy's that went into suspension. The Bellamy's experience. Yeah, the Bellamy's yeah. experience, yeah. And I, I feel like, I don't know, that was a, most, a trial by fire, which you survived. Yeah. I, I, were you surprised the way markets have performed, and in particular the portfolio, of course, since then, and how well you did in that period? Like um, a lot of um, a lot of managers. I think I was listening back to the conversation before that we had a few years ago. A lot of managers. One of them flew the coop, which you mentioned, and the other one, uh, the others would have probably just folded folded at that point. You know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we're high conviction growth investors, and so. There's a bit of, you need to be patient. You need to have stick to with it. And I will say it's easy to say you're a long-term high conviction investor, but when you have a big position like we had in Bellamy's that just gets socked in the face over and over. Do you remember the scene in the Avengers where Tony has the Hulkbuster suit and he finally just, it basically has this fist that just keeps punching and keeps hitting the Hulk in the face till he passes out. <laughs> yeah. That's what it felt like with Bellamy's. Then um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's harder than it sounds um, to, to hang in there. And I think a lot of people, um, yeah, it's easy to say those things. It's harder to, to do them and stick with them, but it helps if, you know, you're, you're true to actually what you say with the process and, you know, you need to have a deep conviction in what you own while at the same time having the ability of flexibility to acknowledge when you're wrong and, and to move on. And when you're investing in small cap growth companies in particular, you know, when it works, it really works. And when it doesn't, it really doesn't. And you need to be intellectually honest to do that. But yeah, that was a, a difficult time. And in a way, in hindsight, it's probably the best thing that could have happened to us because it certainly was it was a very humbling experience and fortunately our clients we'd built up some some loyalty and credibility with them previously so you know we didn't we didn't have people panicking which I'm grateful for and um yeah they probably yeah it was it was just so early um yeah they they hung in there and you know as far as what's happened since then I try not to think too much about overall what, what's happening with markets and more about the things that we can control with our process. And yes, you know, top down does infuse how we think. You know, things like COVID or, you know, major interest rate policy and things like that, inflation. But I'd say it inf we observe it. It informs how we think. But at the end of the day, I think where we can add the most value is choosing businesses carefully, um, backing them, sizing them well and and just giving time to let them play out. On the company side of things, uh, in terms of the investing and the, the companies that you inv you've invested in over the years here in Australia, if we look back on the past few years, you've had positions in things like Afterpay, Zero, Altium very early on, Appen, many of these names that have become very successful names here in Australia, or at least on the ASX. If, if you look, if you take that crop and any others that you can think of, have those positions and those investments taught you anything that you maybe, you know, caused, I guess, an a moment for you to think, wow, this is profound? Yeah, I, I think so. I will quickly say on Appen, we've never owned Appen at Lake House. Pro did own Appen, but that was after I left and that was a Matt Joss special okay. to, to give Matt credit. Um, but yeah, for the others, 
Yeah, we've definitely learned from each of those, from the management teams there, from their visions with them. The, I'd say the insights vary. So with Zero, I think Rod's vision, he was very clear about what he wanted to do, almost to a fault, to be honest, just competitively, with just laying out exactly what he wanted to do. And to his credit, they went out and largely did it. And where they, you know, in spots where they did fall short, like they didn't get in as big in the U.S. as they wanted. They wanted to win the U.S. and they didn't. You know, they're a clear QuickBooks has absolutely, you know, run away with that market. But long-term investors there have still done very well. Australia was a great opportunity, still is, New Zealand, the UK. Um, I, I admire how he stuck to it. I admire that he went for it. Um, I'd say, and I, that's an interesting example there too, kind of talking about the US, because each of those has made a big foray into the US with very divergent results. And I think investors here, like most international pushes from anywhere fail. So that's a base rate. But I think Australians sometimes, for, for whatever reason, they can feel like, oh, well, our companies struggle when they go offshore. But that's the base rate. The thing is, that's what happened to zero. I think, again, competitively, Rod probably overplayed his hand in terms of telling QuickBooks or Intuit what he wanted to do. And they saw what happened in New Zealand, saw what happened to the MyOB here, and, and they proactively disrupted themselves and, and good on them. Uh, but if you look at Altium and, and certainly Afterpay, you know, they completely crushed it in the U.S. Altium's been in the U.S. for a long time. Um, I guess the biggest lessons would be coming off of Afterpay. And, you know, I think one of the meta questions is that's a business that in the time from when we invested to when Square made the offer, you know, it was probably up over 40 fold in something like four years. We didn't we didn't own didn't own our stake continuously. Well, we did own it continuously. It was our biggest position for most of that, but we did reduce over time. Um, it just, it got big in our bridges. <laughs> we had to take some money off the table. Um, but yeah, just seeing the way Nick and Anthony scaled that business um, in a way that I think a lot of Australians would say was aggressive, but it always felt very deliberate and patient when we talked to them. And you know, when their first move internationally was to move to New Zealand, it wasn't to try to kick down the door in the States. It was like, all right, let's go next door, small market, let's tinker, try to figure this out, and then we'll go from there. And then when they went to the US, the strategy again was pretty deliberate where they got a partner uh, matrix to essentially fund the US push, um, which I probably goes back to Anthony Eisen's um, you know, he's a very steady hand, been in the industry for a long time and looked at it as, all right, we'll get 80% of the upside here. If this works out, we'll get someone else to fund it. Very clever way to do it. It worked out very well. In hindsight, they might wish that they hadn't taken that money and, and just raised more here and gone it themselves. Um, but yeah, the way they executed um, just top to bottom was really impressive. There was a question that you asked a CEO one day when I was fortunate enough to come along to a management interview that you did in Melbourne. And the question was, you, you were asking them about basically their policy towards acquisitions. And you said, what's one target or one acquisition target that you could have made, but you didn't? Uh, and explain. And I'll, I'll ask the question to you. What's one investment that you passed on that was a success? And you know, what were some of the, the takeaways from that, if you haven't? Sure. I, I think it's a great 
It's great turnaround uh, on me. And I think <laughs> investors sometimes focus too much on learning from losses. And I think it's good to learn from losses, but it's those those errors of omission when you should have been in something that probably are the most painful. Um, for me, that would be Netflix. So I've been a customer of Netflix for probably 15 plus years and a happy one at that. I thought the move to streaming made a lot of sense. I was one of, you know, I used it straight away. I saw the value prop for it. Netflix is something that I should have owned. We should have owned at some point because you've got, let me just take things, these things off. Founder-led business, um, absolutely disruptive leader in the space, tremendous unit economics, very loyal customers, um, increasing returns to scale as they get bigger. And I think the real points in particular where I kick myself for not having invested were after the Quickster debacle, which I don't know if you remember. It's vaguely, vaguely. So they were reshuffling the business into different units and rebranding the DVD business Quickster. Long story short, that didn't go over well. It wasn't received well by markets or customers and stock got hammered. Um, that was probably a good window. The The second one that in particular I kicked myself on was after House of Cards came out. Mm. And so at the time, it's funny to think in hindsight, but it was controversial that they were going to start producing their own content because it's like, well, this is expensive. It's high risk. You don't know if it'll work. After watching House of Cards, which was so obviously great, commercially well-received, watched by tons of people, it should have been pretty clear to me that they could do it well and that there'd be a lot more in the pipeline behind that. But I I didn't invest at that point, and that's that's one that I regret. There are plenty of companies that have done really well that we didn't buy that I actually don't mind it. And I won't, I won't name names, but there are ones that we've looked at where we did a lot of work um, and said, you know what, this just doesn't fit the criteria we're looking for, and it's done well. And I'm okay with that because I think if you're going to have a deliberate process and focus, you know, you just need to be okay passing on a lot of ideas, even when those things do well. But it's the ones that, you know, it, it was in our strike zone. And I'm like, yeah, no, we, we should have bought that. And so why didn't you buy it? What was it specifically about it? Was it the shift? What is that in that second stage there? Was it the I shift? I think I probably, changed or? I'm guessing I talked myself, uh, well, when I looked at it, valuation was, was what I talked myself out of it on. But I don't think... Two things probably happened since then. One is valuations have gone a lot higher. Uh, but even if you strip that out, I think I just didn't fully appreciate the pricing power around the business um, and you know the scope to which they could do original content, how well international would go and how well they could leverage international content globally. Hats off to the people that have owned it. I know David Gardner's owned it. I think Tom's owned it forever um, and they've done very well with that. So hats off to them. Mm. I remember seeing or hearing a very convincing pitch from an Australian fund manager, global fund manager, but based in here in Australia, at the time that they pivoted to producing their own content. And they basically said the economics are terrible. They're just going to be like any broadcaster, any you know, um, movie house. We're going to see the economics fall down. And it's priced as, a, as you know, it's a software company, but you know, there were so many reasons not to own it at the time. And I think they got smoked on that position, but. Um, it was very convincing and you know we can easy, easily look back now hindsight how about well, if I, I will say mm -hmm. one thing that i've i've learned over a long time particularly from guys like david gardner and just growth investing in general is shorting 
high growth companies is just, it's the ultimate bad range of outcomes where you are more likely to be right. You know, high growth companies tend to be statistically expensive, right? And they have a wider range of outcomes, <clears throat> wider range of outcomes than, than cheaper companies. But when you do get burned, you get burned massively. And as you get burned, the position gets larger. And, you know, if you've put out a short thesis or I, I don't know who exactly you're talking about, but we can save them. The, we won't name them, whoever they are. Uh, we all make mistakes. Um, but, you know, they got up, they gave this big presentation, talked a big game about it. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to, and I've been there on the long side. It's hard to walk back. Hey, you know what? We made a mistake and um, yeah, it's tough to do. Mm, it is. You mentioned that, um, and I think our listeners would love to hear this from you. It's just, has your approach to valuation changed? Because you mentioned Netflix there's valuation, you know, we all know it's very expensive, unconventional metrics. Has your just general approach around valuations doing that side of investing changed over the last 10 or 15 years? Yeah, I'd say in some, some ways, but my teams have gotten more sophisticated qualitatively. Um, but I probably spend less time going down rabbit holes in spreadsheets than I used to. So, you know, we'll still do valuation work. I think the price we pay still matters. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there's a huge edge to be found when you're investing in a high growth company around having, you know, are you... If somebody's got a cost of equity of eight and a half percent and you've got eight, which one of you is right? That I don't think that's where alpha comes from over a multi-year time horizon. It's from really understanding competitive dynamics of a business, their core economics and how those things are shifting and what you see differently from the rest of the market. And those are the big things to get right. And if you get those right, generally over a you know a few years, you're you're probably gonna do well. There, there are exceptions. I mean, there are things we've looked at, particularly recently, where you know you could find a lot of SaaS names, for example. I love SaaS as a business model. I adore it. But some of them we've looked at, we really, really struggle to articulate a, a realistic case of getting attractive returns on some of those. And so, you know, we try to be grounded, uh, but very much, you know qualitatively led and, and the valuation is the last thing we do. You know, I think we've talked about this before, but I used to start with doing a model when of course I didn't really know all the core drivers and eventually learned to, to turn that around. Do you think that, uh, I think, I don't know if I've asked you this on a podcast before, but I've definitely spoken to this, to you about this. How would you define the difference between an investor and an analyst? Oh, yeah. So I think that's a really important distinction because I think there are some people who are great analysts. They're great at tearing apart. They're great at digging into something and they love learning a lot, um, breaking down a business. But I think there's, there's a difference because an, an investor takes everything you've learned as an analyst and they, they put it to work and they make those active decisions. And something I've always been big on, <clears throat> big on is hiring investors, not analysts. And the reason being, and with all our analysts, I always push them on, well, what do you think we should do here? How do you think we should size this? And getting them to think like a PM and a, you know, an investor, not just an analyst and articulate why. So, you know, look this, okay. So I've done all this analysis, but what does that mean, right? Like, what do you think? of the core drivers of this business? Is it different from what the market sees? And then if you think we should own it, you know, 
okay, well, how does this fit with the rest of the portfolio? Does this improve our risk reward? Um, you know, do, do we get really valuable diversification benefits from this? And just pushing them to think more strategically. Um, and we're not looking for, what I tell new analysts is, I'm not looking for a book report when you start. You know, I'm not looking for the longest report possible. I'm not looking for details so much as I'm looking for insight. And I think people that really look for that and are hungry to, to put the insights to work are people that I enjoy working with. Do you think that comes from having to write so much? It could, it could. Um, but I'd say our research notes tend to be a lot tighter than some, than some other shops. And there are some shops that have very big teams and like very, very big teams. But a lot of those um, analysts, they're just, they're doing tons of research, which is cool and all, but a lot of that doesn't translate into actionable investing IP or turn into, you know, ideas that end up in the portfolio or helping to shape what you're doing. And I've always really enjoyed working on smaller teams. So, you know, my first, my first role um, at the fool where I was uh, leading a team, it was three people, pretty tiny. And that was because it was on a, a very tiny product. So it was just a function that I didn't have any control over it. But what I discovered was the people on our small team were much more engaged, hands-on. They felt a real sense of ownership in what we were doing. And it was a big lesson for me on, I want our teams to be as big as they need to be, where we have redundancy coverage, we can turn over as many, enough rocks as we want to turn over, but not so big that people feel like they're not part of the action or they don't have a voice. And so I, I think we've struck a nice balance since then. But yeah, that just making sure that that everyone has that engagement, um, I think it goes a long way. I'm really interested about the insights piece. If I could double click on that for a second, how do you? What, what do you have any? Maybe some examples of how someone presents to you in a way that you think, okay, this is this this person is in the in the investor bucket, if you like, rather than the analyst bucket. Are there some examples of that? You know, I'm just trying to get some. Tangible. Um, this is probably selfish of, of me to ask this, but well, uh, I think trying that to figure out where I might land on this. It's a good question, and it's hard. It's I, I've discovered over time. It's a lot harder to suss out than I probably thought earlier on. So, you know, I think we talked about a hiring process the last yeah. time I was on, and to kind of speak to maybe how that's evolved a little bit since then. So I I'm very hands on with hiring. Uh, I look at every CV, every cover letter. Um, we're, we're currently hiring for an analyst now. And even though, you know, I'm, I'm phasing out of the business, I'm the one running the hiring process. Donnie asked me to do it because I'm, he knows I'm really passionate about it. Uh, Donnie became the co-founder of the business. Um, and the way we approach that is it's very deliberate, but one thing we do is a quiz at the opening and it's essentially a test that you can't, it's hard to just Google the results. I mean, you could get a, you know, a more experienced friend, I suppose, to help you with it. But it's to, there to kind of just test a little bit around insight. And it's kind of a negative screen in a way. And we'll ask as part of that, you know, to rate yourself on these different factors. And, you know, I think we've spoken before, but it's amazing how many people will, you know, rate themselves on a scale of one to 10, be like, oh, I'm a, I'm a 10 as an analyst on competitive 
advantage and I'm a 10 on financial statement analysis and they'll get like a six out of 11 on the quiz. (laughs) It's, it's something to see. Um, but you know, we use that as a, as an initial screen, but we use, I guess where I'm going to this is we use multiple ways to try to assess it. So we use something like that. Then we'll do like a longer form kind of interview that we do, um, just with a Google form and trying to suss out how they think. And it's less about there's trying to find where the rubber meets the road on how they think and how they actually approach companies. And what's hard about that is so many people, you know, to be honest with you, if you listen to this podcast, just tons, and you listen to a bunch of podcasts, you could probably articulate a philosophy fairly clearly if you're an articulate person, um, but may not know how to put the process to work. And so it can be interesting to drill in with people once you get past, they, they, they speak to it well, but then when you probe them more directly, it doesn't always um, come through. And what we try to do is just probe to the depths of where we feel like we kind of hit the bottom and then stop because we don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Um, but that's something we do. And then we try to, another thing is, you know, there's so much great analysis on companies out there today. We try to avoid talking about one specific company too much because it's possible. Like if you listen to, you know, one of Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcasts on insert company here, you know, he's got that great business breakdown podcast. Anybody could listen to one of those and, you know, in an interview, crush it if they end up having to talk about that company. But what you want to do is you don't want to hire the guy that just happened to be listening to that podcast. So we just approach it from, many different facets ask a lot about not so much individual companies, but frameworks and problems and, and see and economic models and see how they approach those things. So it, it requires a fair bit of work, but it's, it's fun. And it's always really rewarding when you get to, um, you know, make an offer to a person and bring them on the team. And that's exciting. Mm, yeah, it is. I find that some people, uh, maybe not necessarily that lack the experience, but just, uh, are in that the analyst mindset, very technical. Um, they can they get stuck in the minutiae and then they don't know how to abstract out of that and then see how those pieces, like the cogs fall into the wheel. Yeah. And that's probably the best way that I can explain it. Um, we can all say that we like, you know, wide mode competitively advantaged businesses, but what does that look like up close and personal? And then how do you identify that before someone else has already said it? And I, I, I find that's a very hard thing. That's to the articulate. hard part. Yeah, that's the hard part, right? And so, it's like you said before, it's about turning over rocks, but not too many that you lose kind of the essence of what you're trying to trying to do. Switching gears a little bit, uh, since you've come to Australia, you started a family. I'm really interested to know if you have any wisdom for parents out there, or would be parents, perhaps like myself. How do you teach? kids the value of money and the value of investing and about business about the economy how do you get them excited well we it's a good question so our son is he'll be eight soon so he's old enough to be talking about businesses and and i'll talk to him about our business and how it works and who we serve why we try to serve them and i talk about look if we do this well this is the outcome for them this is the outcome for for our team and the business and, you know, just trying to get him engaged and curious and, and he is. And I think when you try to make it personal like that, it helps. Um, 
anytime we talk about individual brands that he's interested in, I always pivot to talking about the business model behind it. So, you know, talk about Nintendo, <clears throat> which we don't own, but, um, you know, we've got a switch in which we have to fight him spending too much time on. Uh, but, you know, we'll talk about that. He, you know, he basically thinks Google is God. So whenever we don't know the answer to something, he's like, ask Google. And he knows that we own, you know, stock and alphabet and have for a long time. Um, whenever we want to buy something online, he's like, well, just, just get it on Amazon. I'm like, yeah, well, we, we usually can do that. And then we own that and, and we have those conversations. So yeah, just trying to get him active, curious. And the, the reality is they're, I don't know, super majority of kids, they're not going to be asking you things like, how is this made or where does this come from? Even those kids are curious. So we try to, to feed it to them a little bit and, and they're fairly receptive. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where parents want to do it. They just don't know how. And oftentimes it comes back to examples work. Well, okay. So, sorry. I, what I would say there is probably the bigger thing for us is just talking more about personal finance. Mm. And I think most people, now this is going to sound ironic because, you know, we're a couple of people who are obsessed with investing, but I think most people, and I, I hear you speak to this often, um, they overlook the personal finance side. And I think people can get obsessed with, I need to get a 12 or 15% return instead of 10 when really if they just saved more, spent less, and were a little more deliberate with personal financial choices, that probably dwarfs uh, sometimes, you know, the investment return angle. And I think that's something we push with Jack as we talk about budgeting. We talk about, you know, he'll ask if we can buy something and we'll just explain, hey, look, we, we're just going to choose to not spend our money on that because... We want to spend it on something else and just inviting him into the conversation and thought process around how we choose to spend our money and what we prioritize. And, and everyone, everyone's family has different priorities. And we try to explain that too. It's like, look, this is things that there are things that we value when we really like other people will spend more money on other things and that's okay. Uh, but you need to, to know what those are. You need to know how much you're bringing in and make sure you're saving enough money for a rainy day. Yeah, I think at that point hammers home for me too. Sometimes it's about having just focusing on getting a bigger shovel and getting more cash in the bank through income, salary, and focusing on that and how much you keep rather than how much you invest and how much you spend. Um, fundamentally important. And I think the only way to approach that, because I find, at least in my experience, kids are less interested in budgeting but they're more interested in like oh that's a, a snickers who makes who like i want a snickers okay um or there's a, a coca-cola did you know coca-cola has been around for 100 years and this that and the other that might be a bit more inspiring on the investing side but i find open and honest conversations about personal finance even just around the dinner table for many years and for generations they seem to have been taboo but just having that conversation is the way to bring the personal finance to life. I find that empowering. And that's something I like about Australians is my sense is Australians are much more comfortable talking about money and personal finance openly in a positive way than Americans are, where it's just, it's much more taboo. It's, you don't, you try to avoid the subject and I think to people's detriment. Yeah. Um, I've got just a couple more questions here. One is from the professional side, perhaps, what are you most proud of well, I'm proud of the, the team we have. I'm proud of the fact that 
when we told people that I'm stepping back that more or less nothing changed as far as clients with the business. Um, you know, clients took the news pretty well. And I'm proud of that because it means that we, Donnie and I built a really good business together. And that's it's robust and people view it that way and trust us. And to me, that was a real, um, yeah, I, I felt really good about that. And, you know, over the years, we've had been fortunate to have, you know, thousands of clients who have trusted us with their hard-earned savings and that we've been able to deliver good performance over that, you know, almost five years now. It, yeah, it, it feels good knowing that we serve those people. And, you know, when people heard the news, um, I got a fair number of letters from clients who were just like, Hey, I just want you to know I was able to retire early or I added onto my house so my parents could move in with me or I'm doing all this travel and stuff like that was really touching. And yeah, I really appreciated that. We were talking just before off air that I think this is generation of investors that have been inspired by what you've brought to the Australian investing scene. And I think you maybe you underplayed it there a little bit about the good performance that you've achieved. Um, you know, I can call it great performance. Um, and I think if we, even if we just ask investors, you know, I think most people that are interested in investing in Australia in their, their 20s and 30s, they would have seen something or be influenced, been influenced by something that you've produced. And I think that's quite remarkable. Um, I just wanted to get that on air so, we've, well, so we know for sure that, very kind of you. that you've, you've, you've put your stamp on it. And I think when I heard the news that... Um, you'd be stepping back and heading back to the US. I, I must admit there was a bit of me that was sad because I know that you've influenced me in so many ways and many of the investors in my circle. Um, but the, the legacy of all of these things that you've spoken about today and in previous podcasts and letters and whatever, um, the thousands of members of The Motley Fool and thousands of clients and the people around the outside, um, I think that's profound. I don't think there are many people who have influenced it, our ecosystem here in Australia that way. So just on behalf of everyone, I thought I'd say that to you today. Well, thank you. Uh, it's very kind of you. I've been fortunate to make a lot of great friends here, work with great people, um, serve, you know, a lot of people whose trust I, I really value. And yeah, I have loved being here. I, I was walking around the city yesterday. I popped in for an appointment, still working from home at this point. But, you know, I just I get so much energy from being in, in the city in Sydney where, you know, a lot of a lot of great memories I've worked with a lot of great people and yeah, you know, both both inside and outside Lake House. And it's it's been a lot of fun. So I'm definitely gonna miss being here and you know, I've learned a lot being here too. So it's been been a great ride. One final question that um I wanted to put to you, which is just what's the number one lesson that you wanted to leave Aussies with? I'd say be a rational optimist. So, you know, I think people um you know, there's a stat you probably hear often that 98% of the world's equity market value is outside of Australia. I'd encourage people to think big with investments and, and what they want to do and and not necessarily be aggressive, but but explore and be curious and try to find what's out there as an investor, um, but in a, in a rational way. That doesn't mean go buy a one cent, you know, specky miner. Uh, it's back great growth companies and and do it with some confidence and yes, diversify. I think that's probably the biggest sin that a lot of inf individual investors make because they don't diversify enough, but yeah, just back great growth companies and entrepreneurs and give it time and patience. And, you know, there are plenty of examples of that working out nicely. 
And I think just generally, it's a it's a more fun way to go about living and investing, to be honest with you. Mm, I agree. Joe, as always, an absolute pleasure to have you sit down with me. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it.